just know we are into a series uh, covering the minor prophets of the Old Testament, the last 12 books of the Old Testament, which so often we can skip over. You know, we get through the major prophets, get the major messages, and then let's get on to the Gospels. And yet, as we miss the minor prophets out, we do miss out some major points and some major themes. And I open these weeks, as we've opened pages we may not have opened too often, that we are discovering something of God working and preparing the world for the time when the Messiah, Jesus, would come. And so we are over halfway through our series and we have arrived at the minor prophet of Nahum, the seventh of our minor prophets. Um, I don't know whether you've ever read the book of Nahum. If you've read through the Bible, you've probably read the book of Nahum. But it may be a little bit about the book of Leviticus that you know very little about it or remember very little about it. It's not great bedtime reading, if I'm really honest. If you suffer from uh, insomnia, insomnia, uh, don't read this book. You'll never get to sleep. It's not one of those uh, books you ought to read. It's quite a difficult read. It's quite a difficult message. If we're really honest, we don't like those bits of the Bible which... Uh, where God gets angry and where God takes out his wrath and, and, and avenges uh, people. Um, I have to even be honest with you that I don't even ever remember preaching from the book of Nahum before. I mean, put yourself in my shoes. How would you like to preach, for example, I've taken one verse at random. What about this verse? Desolation and ruin, hearts melt and knees tremble, anguish is in all loins, all faces grow pale. How would you like to preach on that verse? It's pretty grim, isn't it? I remember um, I wasn't brought up in a Christian family at all, so I didn't know anything about the Bible. And I first started going to a church when I was a teenager. And that was only because I played the church organ at this Methodist chapel. That's the only reason I went. Wasn't brought up a Christian at all. And I remember, you know, the, the minister who used to preach at, at this chapel. He was a really lovely guy, but he never had much joy about him. You know, and, I, and this verse reminds me of some of most of his sermons, I think. You know, he, were, were, he, he could not get any joy. I remember one Sunday, I still live vividly in my memory, even though I was only a teenager at, at the time, and he actually preached on the subject of joy. And even then it wasn't very joyful. <laughs> it was something like, you know, this morning I want to speak on the deep, deep joy of the Lord. And it was give me the impression his joy was so deep he never even found it himself you know so Nahum is that kind of book you know it's not very joyful it's it's full of desolation and ruin and hearts trembling and all faces growing pale so I'm keeping a good eye on you this morning but but um, as graphic as that verse is uh, in the, I, I want to put this book into context because if we can see God's anger, we'll also see God's plan as well and God's revelation. And, and, and we'll see more than anything else that Nahum is a study of God's justice, not just about God's judgment. We've already thought about, um, about, about uh, the, the, the city of, of Nineveh. And that is the center of, uh, of Nahum's uh, message. Uh, and, and most of the minor prophets, as, as we have discovered, are, are prophesying to the, 
the people in Judah or in the northern kingdom of, of Israel. But this message is aimed at the city of Nineveh. Now, we've already, as I said, mentioned Nineveh when a couple of prophets ago we looked at the book of Jonah. He also prophesied to the Ninevites. And there is much to link Jonah and Nahum, these two minor prophets. First of all, as I said, both these prophets prophesied to this great Assyrian city, the capital city of, of, of Assyria called Nineveh. Secondly, if you're interested in little detail like this, and I am, they are the only two books in the whole of the Bible that end with a question. And thirdly, even their names connect themselves with each other. The last three letters of Jonah are actually the first three letters of Nahum. Who said that English is not God's first language? Sorry for those I offended you from the International Fellowship this morning. But, however, although there are connections, there's also differences too. Unlike Jonah, as far as we know, Nahum never visited Nineveh, where, of course, Jonah did, eventually. Also, Jonah and Nahum lived and prophesied at at different times. Nahum's prophecy is about 150 years after that of Jonah. And so they are prophesying in, in very different era, very different generations. And another difference is that although Jonah went to Nineveh and prophesied directly to them, Nam's prophecy, as I said, he he never went to to Nineveh. He probably was in Jerusalem at the time that he prophesied. And this is the interesting thing, that although his prophecy concerns Nineveh, Nam's prophecy was actually to, to, to the Jews in Jerusalem. Nam's name actually means comfort or compassion and it seems at odds with the book until you realize that actually his message was to give comfort and compassion to the Jews the Ninevites of Syria were were always a thorn in the flesh of the Jews and so Nahum's given this prophecy saying you know the Nineveh is going to get its comeuppance and so the Jews are thinking brilliant great that the enemy is going to be off our back once and for all so it's difficult to get our head around, but Nahum's prophecy is concerning Nineveh, but is actually to the Jews to give them comfort, to give them compassion, that God is going to avenge uh, their enemies. Nahum prophesies also at a time when God's people can look forward to messengers returning from Nineveh with some good news. Normally, the messengers that go out and view Nineveh come back with bad news about how aggressive the Assyrians are, and they were a very aggressive army. But they were looking forward to the time when good news would come back. And look at this verse in Nahum chapter 1, verse 15. Look there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. And if this sounds familiar, of course, it recalls the, uh, the more popular and famous prophesy, prophecy in Isaiah, where this time Isaiah's prophesying over the victory of Jerusalem in Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 7. And also the Apostle Paul himself uh, refers uh, to this verse and the verse of Isaiah in particular when referring that all God's people will have the opportunity of bringing the good news, the gospel. Here it is in Romans chapter 10. And how can anyone preach unless they are sent, as it is written? In other words, quoting from the prophecies. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. 
And for the Jews, how wonderful and how beautiful will be that sight when messengers come back from Nineveh, bringing the good news that the walls have fallen, that Nineveh is no more. So about uh, seven centuries before Jesus, God prophesied about the downfall and destruction of Nineveh. Following Jonah's prophecy, Nineveh never repented. Um, so, sorry, uh, following Jonah's prophecy, Nineveh initially repented, but then went back on that, and the, the events spiraled away from God once again. And so God had got to this time now when Nineveh was in such a state that God turns his judgment and his wrath upon them. Um, at that time, if you were to talk about the fall of Nineveh, you would have never believed it. Nineveh was not only a mighty city, a fortified city with walls, but it was the greatest and largest and biggest city in the world at that time. It was an incredibly um, impressive city with, with walls, as I said, and, and heavily guarded and fortified. And anyone who would say that one day this city will fall, you, you would laugh at them. It would seem absolutely unthinkable. Uh, the, 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 the city of Nineveh, as a matter of interest, uh, today would sit in northern Iraq. In the Old Testament, it was Assyria, but today, northern Iraq. And if I mention one name to you, I wonder if you, you recall it. The city of Mosul. You've probably heard that, haven't you, to, to do with all the, the, the troubles that are going on with ISIS at the moment. Well, the city of Mosul stands just across the river Tigris from where the ancient city of Nineveh was. But God's judgment did actually fall upon Nineveh eventually in 612 BC. And in fact, the fall of Nineveh was so great that for over a thousand years after, Nineveh could not be traced. The actual location of Nineveh was uncertain for the next thousand years. So completely destroyed, so completely obliterated by God was Nineveh as a result of the sins of the people. Now, as I said earlier, we don't often like to look at such verses in this book of Nahum, which talks about God's anger and God's judgment. And uh, when we witness to non-believers, we'd much rather speak about God's love for them rather than how angry can be about their sin. We'd like to skip over those verses which talk about Jesus overturning the ta tables in the temple or perhaps cursing the fig tree. And it might surprise uh, many of you to know that actually about 15% of what Jesus said is actually concerned with judgment and hell. So no matter how much we like to think about spending eternity with God, the possibility of spending eternity in the absence of God is also promised and spoken to us quite clearly. Of course, it's been promised to us ever since Adam and Eve. When um, in that in that garden, the first sin was committed when Adam said to God, I know best, and went it against, against God's, um, God's nature and God's obedience. And Adam and Eve, in a sense, uh, were the first uh, part of human mankind who expressed their vulnerability by their nakedness. And since that early time, God continues to express his holy anger against the sin of mankind. The exile of the Jews to Babylonia was seen as a foretaste of the eternity. If we sin, uh, 
taking Adam and Eve out of the garden, taking the Jews out of the, the promised land, away from the holy city, away from the temple, away from God's presence. These were all foretastes of the, the, the possibility of us all spending eternity in, in absence of God. I began last uh, week by saying that Christians today don't like to think about such things. We, when we go out and do our open-air meeting, we, we like to express uh, God's love to people. And maybe it's unfashionable today to speak about judgment and to speak about hell and damnation in the ways that it used to be spoken about, perhaps in Victorian England. But it's so tempting for us to present a, a, a warped and, uh, and, and a different kind of Christian message, the one that uh, we ought to be portraying. And to portray you know, Christianity as some little add-on that'll add some nice little things to your life. The gospel isn't a, a great little addition. The Christian message is soul-shaking. It's costly. It, 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 in reality, it's demanding. The gospel is not a self-therapy. The gospel message is not there just to make us feel better about ourselves or more able to cope. Any preacher, of course, would rather preach about love and mercy and grace of God who forgives rather than to turn to books like Nahum, where we see God's anger and sin being played out in the destruction of this mighty city. I've had people say to me that the preacher's job is to send people away happy and content with their lot and to encourage them for their week ahead. And I've, I've not done my job if I haven't preached a, a happy sermon. But surely the preacher's job is also to make the comfortable uncomfortable. Because that is what the gospel message did. And that's what Jesus did when he spoke. Jesus didn't go around nowhere in the gospels. Does it say that Jesus went around making people feel good? Jesus went around because of the lost sheep of Israel. He came to meet sinners and his business was sin and to remind people of the consequences of that sin. And so a final point I want to make on this is that we need to remember that the consequences of sin come from that initial sin of Adam who went against God and broke that relationship between God and man. And we are all sons and daughters of Adam in that sense. And we are therefore liable to the consequences of sin. The Christian author and evangelist Dr. Blanchard puts it like this. Without exception, men are exposed to God's anger, not merely because of what they have done, but because of what they are. And that's very true. We face the consequences of sin because of what we are. But the gospel message also contains good news. The good news that although sin came about by one man, Adam, the, the um, redemption of that sin came also through one man, the man Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote about this to the first century church of Rome, comparing how, how death came about Adam, but how life came through Jesus Christ. And he ends up by writing regarding Adam that consequently, just as one, that's Adam, uh, trespasses result in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act, the act of Jesus, results in the justification and life for all people. For just through the disobedience of one man, the, man, the many were made sinners, 
so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Adam, through Adam, the sin came, but through Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins also comes. Through Adam, the consequence of sin comes. Through Jesus, the way forward beyond sin is possible. Through Adam, eternity may be spent in hell. Jesus gives us the possibility of eternity spent with God in heaven. Jonah, 150 years previously, came to Nineveh with that way out and invited Nineveh to repent. And they all repented from the king down to the least servant. Nineveh repented and came back to God. But now, as Nineveh goes back to its old ways, uh, that seed of Adam comes back and God's ultimate judgment comes upon them. And that's why Nahum is such a dark book, speaking in graphic detail about the destruction of this city and the despair of the people. Nahum has a big tin of black paint and paints the most darkest of pictures as God brings his condemnation upon this city. It's a very gloomy picture. But as I said earlier, Nahum's name means comfort. And God always provides comfort in the most surprising of places. I, I guess if you were to give your testimony, you would say the same. That sometimes it's been in those very black, very darkest moments when God has been there. As I mentioned earlier, that's that old gospel hymn, Standing Somewhere in the Shadows, You'll Find Jesus. And I guess we can all give, give testimony to those moments in the dark places of our life when we found Jesus there. And I'm pleased to say that of the 47 verses that are in Nahum, there is one good verse. It's almost as if the, the sky is black, and out of the blackness of this sky, a piercing shaft of light shines through this one verse. It's like eventually seeing the light at the end of a tunnel. And you've all been through those tunnels, and we just wonder if we're ever going to get through this dark and dismal and extremely demanding time. But suddenly, a light shines. Suddenly, there's a possibility of coming out. Suddenly, there is hope out of this human dilemma. Suddenly, there's a way out of our problems and our situations. And, and God brings that light, that shaft of illumination, and within it, the promise of glory. So, let's look at the one solitary verse in Nahum that is the light of every believer's tunnel. And that is this. The Lord is God, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. Please say hallelujah. That's the only opportunity I've got you to say hallelujah in this message this morning. It's that one verse. And isn't it just like a piercing light that shines through the darkness? That the Lord is good. He is a refuge in times of trouble. He will spread out his wings and guard us. And he will care for those who trust in him. And for the preacher, preaching on Nahum for the first time, it's great because it gives me three main heads which all preachers love. And the first one is this, the Lord is good. The second one, the Lord is a refuge in the times of trouble. And finally, the Lord cares for those who trust in him. The Lord is good. 
Yes, the Lord does judge. Yes, the Lord does bring his wrath. It can be evident. But fundamentally, God is a God of love. Fundamentally, God isn't a God of anger. God does get angry, but God isn't anger. God is love. I know, I feel. God gets angry, but it's a holy anger. It's the kind of controlled anger that all Christians should demonstrate. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 4.26? In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. That's God's kind of anger. He is slow to anger. It's It's a just anger. But God fundamentally is a good God. He's a God of love. In the words of of the psalmist David, surely goodness and mercy shall be with me all the days of my life. God is a good God. Secondly, the Lord is a refuge in in times of trouble. Or as another translation puts it, God is a stronghold in the day of trouble. I'd like that, don't you? The same way as the walled city of, of Nineveh was a stronghold in that city. God is a stronghold. In times of trouble. If we turn to the Psalms again, we read in Psalm 71, verse 1 In you, Lord, do I take my refuge. How many times have you, as a Christian, taken your refuge in the Lord when all else has failed, when you've nowhere else to go? God has been a stronghold for you in your time of trouble. Those who like little bits of uh, information about the Bible, There are 31,101 verses in the Bible. I've not counted them personally, but I'm told there are 31,101 verses in the Bible. And if you were to find the very central verse in the whole of Scripture, the most central verse in the Bible is actually in Psalm 118, and it's the eighth verse. And that central verse in the centre of the Bible says this, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Isn't that a wonderful verse? The central verse in the Bible. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Don and I visited a member of our congregation just this past week. And we heard the testimony from that congregational member that we so often hear from Christians when they're going through a difficult time. And uh, that, that testimony was something like this. If it wasn't for my faith, I don't know how I could have got through. And I wonder how often you've said that. When you've been in that tunnel, you've wondered how you can get through, and then suddenly you've seen the light at the end of the tunnel, and God has been your refuge, and God has been your stronghold, and suddenly you realize you can put your trust, you can stake your life upon God. And that's so true. That God is our refuge in our times of trouble. And finally, the Lord cares for those who trust in him. Again, another translation renders this verse, he knows those who take refuge in him. God cares for us because he knows us by name. He understands us and and makes allowances for us. God is not a distant God just watching down in anger and in wrath and in judgment upon us. God knows us by name he understands us thank goodness he knows how I tick thank goodness God knows my weakness 
Thank God that through Jesus that I am his child and he, he knows me more than I know myself. The default position of God, like the father of the prodigal son, is that God loves us and understands us and looks out for us. Like a good shepherd, the Lord cares for us and he tends to our needs. As the Apostle Peter wrote, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. That's our God. The God who cares for us. And that's our God whom we can put our trust in. And so this, uh, this wonderful verse shines through this, uh, this difficult and dark prophecy of Nahum, but provides us with hope, a window looking through into God's nature and to God's heart. Yes, God will judge us and everyone regarding their unrighteousness. He will, he will be angry when we let him down, when we sin against him. <clears throat> but those who trust in the Lord will know him because he knows us. Psalm 1 tells us, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Nineveh bears testimony to that. And those who bear the name Christian and who are living in the Lord can be sure of God's eternal love and protection and care. And we can go out into this dark world of ours. We can go out from this, the comfort of this hall and the comfort of this fellowship into the problems that we may face in this coming week and the difficulties and the trials and those dark days that, that are ahead of you that may only you know about. But we can go out knowing that God's shining his light in our direction and that as Christians we want to reflect that light into our darkened world. So let us come to God this morning, praying for his power and for his grace, praying for his justice and for his mercy, praying that God will be our strength and be our shield, that he will be our fortress and our stronghold. And let us praise him for all that he has done in our lives, and let us trust him for all that's yet to come. Amen.